And Lord, as we now prepare our own hearts to come to your word, oh Lord, please bless the preaching of your word. Please use your word to sanctify us, to set us apart, and to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that we would have a practical holiness, a holiness that speaks of the grace that you have poured out on us, the grace that has changed our lives, the grace that has turned us from rebels into your children by adoption. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that it is perfect. It's inerrant, inspired. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And oh Lord, we recognize our need to be trained in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to be continuing in our study of 1 Samuel, looking at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 47, to chapter 15, verse 23. If you can believe it, we're going to cover 29 verses today. Um, (laughs) And last week I preached one verse. Some weeks are just like that. But today we'll be in 1 Samuel, uh, starting in chapter 14 as we continue in our study. Uh, A little bit over three years ago now, um, there was a news piece that was just comical, and most of you probably remember it. There was a, a politically left group of activists that was leading riots across our country in several major cities. Uh, And and if if you had believed, by the way, that the media uh, corporations who reported the news were uh, were unbiased before that point, that whole illusion was was hopefully shattered with just three simple words uh, that the media used to describe those riots. Uh, As people chanted and buildings were burning to the ground in the background, lighting up the sky like an inferno, it looked like a scene from uh, from hell or something, Uh, the reporter described described the riot as a mostly peaceful protest. The humor of the scene wasn't lost on most Americans. It sure didn't look like it was mostly peaceful, did it? If the news had really wanted us to believe that, by the way, I mean, I I think they could have found a better backdrop. They could have found some people who were just standing around holding signs. Uh, But this background of of buildings uh, burning to the ground gave a message that was 100% the opposite of what they were saying, uh, the words that the reporter used to describe it. But the idea of a riot in which buildings are being set on fire and burned to the ground being described as mostly peaceful works about as well as describing a person as mostly human. Uh, a, a person either is or is not human. There, there is no in-between. There's no almost or mostly human. Uh, in fact, the word mostly doesn't work in modifying a lot of different words and concepts. For example, there's no such thing as mostly perfect. Uh, Mostly perfect means imperfect. There's no such thing as mostly male. Uh, Somebody's either perfect or they're not. Somebody's either male or they are not. In the movie, The Princess Bride, I hope most of you have seen that because it's a hilarious movie. 
there's a scene in which two friends uh, bring their apparently dead comrade to a miracle worker who, de- uh, who declares to them that their friend actually isn't dead. He was just mostly dead. Uh, and so the miracle worker declares, he says, quote, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. And he says, now, mostly dead is slightly alive, end quote. And, and it's a great scene. It's a funny scene. And the thing that makes it work, the thing that makes it so hilarious is the fact that we all know that there's no such thing as being mostly dead and slightly alive. You are either one or you are the other. The adjective mostly cannot be used to describe or to modify the word dead. Let me give you one more instance in which you can't use the word mostly. You can't be mostly obedient to God. You either are obedient to God or you are disobedient to God. And as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel today, we're going to see that there is no such thing as being mostly obedient with God. At least in God's eyes, there's no such thing as being mostly obedient with God. And we are more concerned with His view of things than we are with our own ideas related to these things. So we start with chapter 14. And chapter 14 has been a record of this war that took place between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Philistines were provoked unto war by Jonathan, uh, King Saul's son. Uh, But it was a war that while he instigated it, he was also greatly used by God to, uh, to free the Israelites from the oppression uh, that, the, uh, that the Philistines were placing on the Israelites. Uh, that was the first half of the chapter, the battle that Jonathan led them into uh, against the Philistines. The second half of the chapter kind of zoomed in on the battle to show us exactly how terrible of a king King Saul was. The second half zooms in and shows us how King Saul almost sabotaged the whole war with his legalism. That is, he had added to God's Word. He had required more of God's people than God Himself requires of His people. That is textbook legalism. And that almost uh, sabotaged the war effort against the Philistines. He had instructed the soldiers of Israel's army to not eat until the Philistines were defeated once and for all. And not only did that lead to everyone in the army sinning against God, as they plundered the food of the Philistines and ate the meat that still had blood in it, which violated uh, the Hebrew dietary laws. But ultimately, it ended up revealing Saul to be an absolutely terrible king, a terrible leader right in front of his army. Uh, Rather than finishing the war against the Philistines, um, Saul's heavy-handedness gave the Philistines actually time to escape because the military refused to do what King Saul was asking them to do. And thus the Philistines would be back to fight another day and another day and several more days. But the previous passage ended with the whole army taking a stand against King Saul's decree to kill his own son, Jonathan. Uh, They set him free from that death sentence. And so now that brings us to the verse uh, that we're at today, First chapter, First Samuel chapter fourteen, verse forty-seven, uh, where we start uh, to see a, a, just a quick summary. 
uh, the remainder of, of chapter 14, coupled with the first roughly two-thirds of chapter 15, create a story for us that will teach us a very, very important lesson. And it's the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today. The point of this passage is that to be a common, humble, faithful man or woman of God in the end is far greater than being even a fearsome but faithless king. Let me say that again. To be a common, humble, faithful man or woman of God in the end is far greater than being even a fearsome but faithless king. So chapter 14 is going to conclude by giving us this very brief, kind of a general synopsis of the rest of King Saul's life. Let's look at chapter 14, verses 47 to 52. It says, Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malkisua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merib and the name of the younger Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff." That is a summary of Saul's kingship. And I think if we're being honest, it's not a bad summary. We see here that Saul actually had a pretty decent, successful life, at least by worldly standards. And as far as worldly kings go, he wasn't an absolutely terrible king. He did what kings are supposed to do, mostly. But here we see that his time as a king was spent, or at least a lot of his time as a king was spent on the battlefield in war. In fact, this section of the text in, in my Bible is called constant warfare. That's how you describe his whole kingship. Constant warfare. But look at all the people groups that we're told he went to war against. We're told he fought against his enemies on every side against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the, sons, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Four enemies are listed there, and each one represents a different direction, north, south, east, and west. He was enclosed. His enemies were all around him. And Saul defeated them all. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from, from the hands of those who plundered them. If you say that about a king, you'd have to say, from a worldly standard, that king was successful. From a biblical standard, we could say he was successful mostly. Verse 52 tells us, Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. 
And when Saul, Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. What that means is that any time Saul was at war with one of these people groups, if there was a, a warrior that really stood out, a warrior that was particularly talented and skilled out on the battlefield, Saul would recruit that man to fight for him specifically against the Philistines. He defended Israel against all of her enemies, preventing Israel from falling uh, under the kind of oppression uh, that we saw in chapter 13 ever again as his uh, reign, under, under his reign as king. Apart from military conquests, we're told a little bit. We're told that he actually did get married. He did have kids. He, uh, he was blessed by God with a family. He had a wife and they had three sons. They, they had two daughters together. Uh, we're told that Saul's uncle, Abner, uh, was the, the captain of his army. Uh, we're reminded that Saul was the son of a man named Kish and the grandson of a man named Abiel and was related to Ner through his uncle Abner. Um, just a brief summary of his life. But what we've really been given in this synopsis of his life, in a nutshell, is what we would call today an obituary. This is really just an obituary. So-and-so did this throughout his life. He did that in his life. And so-and-so is survived by, insert the names of all the relatives. That's what this ultimately boils down to. The world would look at this and say, what a great king. The world would look at this and say, his life was obviously a success. And from a strictly worldly perspective, I, I suppose that's true. But from a biblical perspective, from a Christian perspective, something should stand out here. And that something is what's actually omitted. Something that's not included in his obituary-like description of his life. It says nothing at all about his walk or relationship with the Lord. I sure hope that that's not missing from my obituary. How about you? Do you hope that when people look back on you, they remember you as a Christian? Or as somebody who just had a great business, had a few kids, and their life came and went? I mean, worldly accolades, don't get me wrong, worldly accolades and accomplishments, they do have their place. Of course they do. It's not that it's bad to have a successful business or to have several kids. Those things are, are great. Those are, those are great things. But in the end, what do they matter to man? There's a poem that C.T. Studd wrote. And it said this. It said, Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. In the end, what do those worldly accomplishments and worldly endeavors that we attempted, what do they ultimately mean? The word that Solomon, when, uh, Solomon went back to time and time again when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes toward the end of his life is vanity. He's writing Ecclesiastes as an old man and he looks back on all these worldly accomplishments, things that we would call success. He says they're vanity. That word also means meaningless. Because ultimately they are. That's what it means for it to be vanity. All of the worldly accolades, all of the worldly accomplishments may leave a person with a rich legacy of some sort among men. 
But what good does it do for the person when they are dead and gone? Ultimately, it is all vanity. It is meaningless. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about what your obituary will be like. What it will look like. What it will say. Isn't it kind of weird to think that you won't actually get to read your obituary? Because all of your earthly accomplishments and all of your accolades won't mean anything to you specifically after this life. But there is one thing that will matter, and that is whether or not you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will matter when you are dead and gone. The lesson of Saul's obituary is that it is better to be a common, humble, faithful man or woman of God whose life was marked by faithfulness to the Lord than it is to even be a king who accomplishes much but was faithless like King Saul was. You might be a king. In our country, of course, that's not an option. Maybe you'll be a rock star. Maybe you'll be a social media influencer. Maybe you aspire to be a professional athlete. But in the end, none of those things mean anything. They're vanity. They're meaningless. Isn't that funny in a way? Funny in the sense that those are the things that we are so inclined in our minds to prioritize because that's what we're taught to do in school. That's what we're taught to do is to to set goals and to achieve them to the point of idolatry even. To be a common, humble, faithful man or woman of God is in the end far more important, is far greater than to even be a fearsome but faithless king, rock star, social media influencer, athlete, whatever. So with all that in mind, let me ask you this. What is your highest priority in life? And what do you want to be remembered for? What do you want your obituary to say or to not say? What we're going to see in chapter 15 is that King Saul will be rejected by God. And the reason for his rejection can be boiled down to the fact that God was not Saul's highest priority in life. In fact, God wasn't even in the top ten. If you did a top ten list of priorities in Saul's list, uh, he was probably number one through eight, then he had a wife and kids, and maybe they were nine and ten. He was constantly consumed with his own agenda, his own glory, never ever concerned about God's glory. God was never a priority for him. And it's for this reason that Saul tried to be only mostly obedient unto God, which again is an absolutely ridiculous idea. But in the end, Saul's life will remind us that to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. So as we move to chapter 15, uh, we should start this chapter. We should start chapter 15 by recognizing that this is the chapter that really sets the stage for David to be introduced. And of course, David will be the main character throughout the rest of the chapters to come. So this is a chapter, it's a very transitional uh, chapter, but this is a chapter that will show us why David is needed, and it will show us ultimately why Saul was rejected by God. 
Uh, So let's move to chapter 15 and look at verses 1 to 9. It says, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now, Go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." So it seems as though Samuel took something of a a lengthy break from giving guidance to King Saul, from giving direction to King Saul. The last time uh, that they saw each other, at least as far as we know, as as far as the text has told us, uh, was when King Saul failed to wait for Samuel to arrive. Uh, Samuel was supposed to make a peace offering unto God. Instead, King Saul offered the sacrifices himself, which was a serious violation of the order that God had given for presenting sacrifices. And that taught us, if you remember, that God is the one who decides how He is to be worshipped. We don't just worship Him the way that we want. Uh, We worship Him the way that He has instructed. Uh, But the result for King Saul uh, was that Samuel rebuked him harshly, uh, but justly, uh, before Samuel went off on his own way. But this chapter begins with Samuel once again seeking out King Saul, this time with more instructions from the Lord. Notice how specific he says this is. He's not coming with with his own thoughts. Samuel isn't coming with Samuel's word. Samuel is coming with the word of the Lord. These are things that God has given him to speak directly to Saul. He says to King Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. So these are the Lord's words. These aren't Samuel's uh, words. They're not his thoughts. They are God's. King Saul had an obligation to listen because God was the one who had anointed him as king of Israel. So the instructions that Samuel gives to King Saul from the Lord pertain to one of Israel's greatest enemies, the Amalekites. Uh, The Amalekites, uh, you might remember, were a nomadic tribe. 
Uh, They could be found to the south and to the southeast of Israel. Uh, But the hostility between Israel and the Amalekites went back to the Exodus as God was leading the Hebrew people out of Egypt, uh, passing through the land, they were ambushed by the Amalekites. Uh, And this resulted in um, the famous battle, you might remember, in which Israel triumphed as long as Moses' hands were uh, kept extended, as long as his his hands were were held up. And as Moses' arms grew tired, of course, Aaron and Hur uh, helped Moses to hold his hands up until the victory was complete. But obviously, that was not the end of the hostility between the Israelites and the Amalekites. Uh, later on in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19, God would say this to them. He said, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. And he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which your Lord, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. And now the moment has come. Several books later, the day has come for this action to be finalized. God has withheld His final judgment of Amalek until it could be carried out at King Saul's hand. Now, You might be thinking that this doesn't sound very fair uh, for God to instruct Israel to go in and wipe out this people group. But if that's what you're thinking, let me just stop you right there and remind you that this people group had several generations to repent and to turn to the Lord, and yet they didn't. Uh, And and thus we're reminded that God has the sovereign right to execute judgment or to delay judgment. Uh, He can execute it in His own time and in His own way. We're reminded of the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. Uh, When Jonah goes with this message that God's going to destroy you all, His wrath is coming, and what happened? They repented and the Lord withheld His judgment. So, the fact that God is sending them into war after giving them so much time to repent and to seek the Lord, reminds us that this is perfectly just. God is always perfectly just. We are never, ever in a position to question or to judge God's judgment. It is always right. It is always pure. It is always, always, always just. Remember that much as we continue. So, Saul was instructed to eliminate the Amalekites from the land, from the greatest to the lowest, from the oldest to the youngest, rich, poor, man, woman, all of them. Justice was to be served in the way that God had instructed. And in this way, the entire Amalekite nation would serve as a monument of God's perfect justice. This brings us to a portion of Scripture that some people question, uh, where they they question the morality of the God of the Old Testament, uh, as if He is different from the God of the New Testament. Uh, No, it's the same God. 
It's the same God. Uh, some look at this passage and they say that, that God is clearly a moral monster. At least this God is. Uh, some look at this passage and they say, as one commentator did, that the Israelites, quote, had yet much to learn about the character of God, end quote. As if God's character would never instruct His people to go to war or to execute His judgment. Of course, the obvious problem with these arguments is that God was the one who had instructed King Saul to lead the charge in executing justice on God's behalf against the Amalekites. The order comes from God, not from Samuel, not from any person or people who were ignorant of God's true character. Uh, God is perfectly aware of His own character. God's wrath flows from one of His uh, most well-known attributes, that being His holiness. If God were not holy, He would not be just in pouring out His wrath on unholy people. So it, it flows from His holiness, holiness, and thus this war does flow from God's character. Now just to be clear here, there's, there's only one war that God has called us to today, as Christians today. There's only one war that He has instructed us to engage in, and that is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. We should never take it upon ourselves to punish any people on God's behalf today. Uh, those aren't God's instructions to us at all. No, these orders were given specifically to Saul, specifically as the king of Israel, and they came directly from God. And if you want to try to tell me that God wants us to go to war against people today, i got to say, give me the chapter and verse. It's not in the Bible. Christians are not to punish people on God's behalf. We're to engage in warfare against the sin in our lives. That's it. And trust me when I say that you have enough sin in your life to keep you busy, to keep you occupied for the rest of your life. You don't need to worry about punishing somebody else on God's behalf. You already have enough of your own sin to work through. You don't need to be engaged in any other form of warfare. The purpose of this particular war was really twofold. It was, number one, for the preservation of national Israel, and number two, it was for the execution of God's righteous judgment on wicked nations that God at that specific time specifically desired to pour His wrath out against. The truth is, friends, that every nation, every people group, every person has sinned against God. And thus God reserves the sovereign right to justly judge whenever and however he chooses. And thus his judgment against the Amalekites, while it might sound harsh to our modern ears, was perfectly just. It was perfectly just. And Saul is eager to respond. He's eager to, uh, to, to do what God has asked him to do. So he calls together 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. We, we see that they've got a, a very sizable army here. They're ready for battle. And as they draw near, we're told that King Saul instructs a group of people called the Kenites to flee and to flee far from the Amalekites uh, so that they wouldn't be uh, killed while the Amalekites are killed. 
Now, this on King Saul's behalf is actually good. Uh, he, he's doing the right thing here because God didn't instruct Saul to engage in any warfare against the Kenites. So God was specific and Saul is being specific here. The Kenites had apparently shown kindness to Israel when they were being led out of Egypt. Uh, the Bible doesn't actually record what kindness King Saul might have in mind here, what uh, kindness in the past he might be referring to. But what's obvious for us here is that, that uh, the Israelites remember what that kindness was. And so we're told in verse 7 that King Saul, after the Kenites have, have fled, uh, King Saul goes in and he defeats the Amalekites. But for all that he has done right here, and to give credit where credit's due, he has done some things right. He, he immediately responded to God's instruction by immediately preparing for war, and he showed mercy to the Kenites. These things are good. But despite all the good and all the right that he has done here, we can't fail to recognize that King Saul only almost obeyed God. But he came up short. Instead of eliminating their king, Agag, they merely captured him. Not only was King Agag spared, but so were, look at verse 9, so were the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. Good in whose eyes? Theirs. Theirs. All that was despised and worthless, they destroyed. Despised and worthless in whose eyes? Theirs. You see how they're picking and choosing what they're going to obey and what they're not going to obey? It's by their own judgments. They think they know better than God. That's a terrible place to be in, by the way. Everything that was despised and everything that was worthless, according to them, was destroyed. But anything that they thought might come in handy or useful, anything that they deemed good was spared. There's an old saying that goes, close doesn't count except in horseshoes and hand grenades. Uh, when it comes to obedience to God, there's no such thing as close enough. And the concept of being mostly obedient or almost obedient really is just a euphemism for disobedient. That's what it really means, disobedient. See, in the previous chapter, we saw that King Saul was guilty of legalism, right? By adding to God's Word, he was, he was a legalist. He'd required more of God's people than God Himself had required of them. Uh, this involved adding to God's Word. But what we see here is, well, we're not only warned against adding to His Word, we're also warned to not subtract from His Word. Scripture admonishes us and warns us uh, from subtracting or taking away from His Word as well. And when that happens, you have antinomianism, which is another word for lawlessness or licentiousness. See, it's just as bad to add to God's Word as it is to detract from it or to subtract from it. Both carry the assumption that we know something God doesn't know or that we know better than God knows or we are more moral than God is. It implies these things one way or another. And thus both legalism and licentiousness or lawlessness are motivated really by the same thing. They're both motivated by foolish, foolish pride. God deserves to be Perfectly obeyed. Perfectly obeyed. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. 
He's the one who is perfect. He's the one who knows all things. There is never, ever, even one time when we know something better than God does. There's never one time when we are more moral than God is. We don't need to apologize for God. And that's something that should kind of go without saying, except that there are a lot of legalists and a lot of lawless people who claim to be Christian who could possibly benefit from being reminded that we never, ever know better than God does. Never. So ultimately, both legalism and lawlessness transgress God's law. And they're really not all that different from one another. Saul is guilty of both. Almost obedient or mostly obedient is ultimately just a euphemism for disobedience. And this is what leads to Saul's rejection by God as the king of Israel. Let's continue in verses 10 and 11. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Now once again, these are not Samuel's thoughts being shared with us here. No, we're given a glimpse of God's heart, of God's mind, his thoughts in real time. He regretted that he had made Saul king. Why? Because Saul was faithless. Because Saul was disobedience. He didn't follow, he didn't carry out God's commands. Oh, but he almost did. He, he came kind of close-ish. We know better than to say that, don't we? There's no such thing as almost obeying or mostly obeying. Now the idea that God regrets, that's what we're told here, is that God regretted making Saul king. And the idea that's, that God can experience regret kind of opens a theological can of worms that leaves some people with some, some very real questions, I'd say legitimate questions, good questions, about God's omniscience. Omniscience meaning that God is all-knowing, that He knows all things not only in the past, not only in the present, but that He also knows all things in the future. It would seem that if God knows all things, past, present, and future, that he couldn't possibly feel or express regret because regret is really what we feel when things don't work out the way that we thought they would or should. And so to resolve this apparent dilemma, some have resorted to a new school of thought that's out there. And I've mentioned it before. Uh, You may have heard of it. It's called open theism. Open theism. Now, just to be perfectly frank up front, I have a little bit of skin in the game with this one because I have some extended family members who are open theists and who are actually somewhat prominent uh, members in the open theist community. And so with that said, let me just assure you that I have read and I have prayed and I have researched and thought and contemplated uh, this subject exhaustively exhaustively. Now, in a nutshell, open theism teaches that God does not know the future. Uh, So it's open with him. It's unsettled with him. It's unknown by him. An open theist would insist that if God were to know the future, then he has to have determined the future, and that if, if God has determined the future, we can't have free will 
And so thus, for open theism, God is all-knowing in a very limited sense. They would say he's all-knowing in the sense that he knows everything in the past, he knows everything in the present, but he doesn't know the future at all because our free will hasn't been exercised and our free will is what determines the course of human history. What a terrifying thought that is if you know what the Scriptures teach about God's sovereignty over all of human history. So summarizing the, the consequences of open theism, Richard Phillips in his commentary, he notes, and, and notes rightly, I should add, that, quote, open theism thus not only undermines the Bible's overall portrait of God, which emphasizes God's predestinating sovereignty over all things, but radically undercuts believers' confidence in God's ability to fulfill His promises and triumph in the end for our salvation, end quote. And again, I would agree wholeheartedly with his summarization there, everything that he said. Now let me ask you this, if, if you heard what he said, that, that open theism undermines believers' confidence in God and in his ability to fulfill the promises that he's made for our salvation, who, who wants to do those things? Who wants to undermine your confidence in God? Who wants to make you feel uncertain about God's promises? I'm just saying, the enemy of God does. Satan wants to do these things. That's, that's his agenda. And thus, we, we have to see, we have to conclude that open theism really functions as a means of accomplishing Satan's goals and aspirations in the lives of Christians. Open theism radically, radically alters the nature of God's character as revealed in Scripture. It gives us an almost God, which is no God. It gives us a God who is capable of being wrong. It gives us a God who is capable of changing and who has no idea what's coming other than to see the statistics and all these trajectories and where they're going and, oh, I, th I think this is where things are going. God's not a roulette player, friends. He's not a blackjack player. He's not counting the cards and saying, oh, the odds seem pretty good, so I, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to think this is going to happen. That's not who God is. God doesn't learn. God doesn't change. No, the God of Scripture says things like what we read in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 5. He says, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Open theism makes God like us. Perish the thought. The God of Scripture says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's again from Isaiah 46, uh, verses 9 and 10. How could God declare the end from the ancient days, from the beginning, if he didn't exhaustively not only know the future, but ordain the future. Isaiah says of the Lord, Isaiah 40, 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who, uh, or, or as his counselor, who has informed him? It's a rhetorical question. It's kind of a dumb question, right? The, the obvious answer is nobody has done these things with God. Nobody has taught God anything. Nobody has given Him counsel. Nobody can question His will. 
In Malachi 3.6, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. In Numbers 23.19, it says, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. That brings us back to our text. If God knows all things, past, present, and future, how can He regret making King Saul? Or, or making Saul king? The answer is pretty simple. He, he really did regret it in that moment. For in that moment, he really did regret making Saul the king of Israel. Just because God knew that this was going to happen doesn't mean that he, uh, that he can't feel or that he can't express appropriate emotions when things play out in real time. Ralph Dale Davis notes that this text, quote, does not depict Yahweh flustered over lack of foresight, but Yahweh grieved over lack of obedience, end quote. So we should see that the point of this text isn't to show us that God doesn't know the future. He does, but it's to consider His displeasure and His disgust toward almost obedience or mostly obedience. We should therefore come away from this text with an understanding that God is only worthy of full obedience to everything that He instructs, every last detail. We're told that Samuel ends up spending all night in distress, crying out to God, crying out to the Lord. And I think this is recorded for us so that we might see how we should respond when we know that God is displeased as a result of not having been obeyed. In the end, he'll declare, uh, Samuel will declare in verse 29, uh, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And by the way, uh, the phrase change his mind is actually just one Hebrew word, the same Hebrew word, naham, that gets translated regret in verse 11. So Samuel wakes up early the next day to go and to confront King Saul in his disobedience. Let's continue, verses 12 to 23. It says, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. 
But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of lambs. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. What was Saul's motivation for falling short of God's instructions? It's actually revealed for us pretty forthrightly here in the text, if you caught it. Uh, Here, once again, we see that Saul is absolutely consumed with the quest for his own glory. He was setting up, we're told, uh, Samuel was told that he was setting up a monument to himself. A monument to himself. He he was essentially giving himself, you know, a high five, uh, you know, celebrating his victory over the Amalekites, patting himself on the back. He wanted to make sure that the people for generations would remember what he had done. And to this day, we do, ironically, don't we? Uh, But not because of the monument that he set up, but because God's word preserved his story as a picture of what we should not do. So Saul then returned to Gilgal, which is where he would be confronted and rebuked once again by Samuel, but not before he smugly congratulates himself as he greets Samuel, saying, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Has he really? In in which universe? Not this one. Uh, The only one Saul, the only person Saul has obeyed is really himself. He's done what seemed best and wisest in his own eyes. But he certainly hasn't carried out the command of Yahweh. He almost did. He almost obeyed, which is only to say he disobeyed. He disobeyed. And Samuel's response is kind of humorous. It's perfect. He says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? In other words, oh, if you, if you did everything that God instructed you to do, why am I hearing all these animals? Why am I hearing all these animals? And of course, those sounds were animals, uh, of animals were proof that Saul had not done exactly what the Lord had instructed him to do. And so our text concludes with Samuel giving a, a lengthy rebuke to Saul, which culminates in uh, God's rejection of Saul as king. But in his rebuke of King Saul, uh, Samuel gives us some very important principles when it comes to uh, sin and obedience. Uh, The first principle here is that obedience uh, to God means actually doing what God has instructed us to do. Not just coming, you know, pulling up a little bit short, not pulling up, you know, where it starts to get uncomfortable, but to actually do what He has instructed us to do. Contrast this, contrast what Saul has done with what we read about Noah in Genesis 6.22, which says this, it says, Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. That is a picture of true obedience. That's what obedience looks like. So the, the first principle that we can glean here is that obedience to God 
means actually doing what God has said. Secondly, the temptation when we're confronted with our sin, when we're confronted with our uh, imperfect or mostly obedience, is to double down like Saul does. Look at what he says. He says, I did obey the voice of the Lord. In which universe again, right? I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Now, what he said that he did is, is all true, but he hadn't been instructed to spare the king or the sheep or the oxen. And so he's being called out in, in his sin here, and he's just doubled down. What we need to understand, friends, is that God offers grace and God offers repentance, not for those who double down on their sin when their sin is exposed, but for those who humbly confess their sin before him. Third, don't pass the blame to somebody else when you've been disobedient. Don't pass the blame. It's not a hot potato. Don't pass it to somebody else. That's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. That's what Saul does here. Look at what he does. He, when his obedience, when his sin is brought up, he suddenly changes from speaking about himself in the first person. Uh, suddenly it's they, the people, they spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. See how he tries to put a positive spin on it? They, they disobeyed so that they could sacrifice to the Lord your God. He doesn't even say our God. I suppose we could say at least he's being honest here. Fourth and finally, God is not pleased by hypocrisy. He's pleased by obedience. If God is to be pleased, then God must be honored. If God is going to be honored, he must be obeyed. Samuel's response really says it all for us. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, uh, and, and to heed than the fat of rams. The bad news for us is that every single last one of us, in one way or another, has disobeyed God. In fact, the closer we compare our lives with Scripture, we see the more we have done it, the more we have disobeyed God. We have sinned against Him in thought, in what we say, in what we do. We've sinned against Him by the things that we've done. We've sinned against Him by the things that we haven't done. We have sinned against Him in countless unimaginable ways. So the question that that forces us to ask is, is God going to reject us then? How can God be pleased with us if we have sinned against Him? If we have disobeyed Him? If we've only almost or mostly obeyed Him? How could God ever be pleased with us? The answer is that we need somebody's perfect obedience to be credited to us so that it would be as though we had been perfectly obedient. Because if we don't have someone's perfect obedience credited to us, then God will reject us. He will not be pleased with us. And we are only worthy of a full outpouring of His holy and just wrath. So how can we be made acceptable in God's eyes? 
how can we receive somebody's obedience on our behalf? That brings us to the good news. The good news is that Jesus, and Jesus only, was obedient, perfectly obedient, to the will of the Father. That's why when Jesus was baptized, the Father called out from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17 At the end of Jesus' earthly mission when He's praying His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus said, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given Me to do. And of course, the resurrection proves that His work was perfectly pleasing and acceptable to the Father. Friends, Jesus died for our disobedience and He lived so that we could be credited with His perfect obedience, which is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's the good news. It's a free offer of forgiveness made to sinners like you and me. The question that that leads us to is, well, what can we do for God then? What what can we give God in exchange in response to His amazing gift of grace freely given in Christ Jesus? He doesn't need anything. He he doesn't need anything from me. I, I, I might have a little bit of money. He could make money out of thin air if he wants to. He can do whatever he wants. I can't give him rams or oxen or sheep. He, he makes the sheep. He makes the rams. What can I offer God? Out of love and thanksgiving unto God, we can and we should give our time and resources to the advancement of His kingdom. But even before that, if we're doing that, but we're disobedient, He doesn't need our stuff. So even before that, we should obey. That's what we can give God. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Peter said in his first epistle that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and his and be sprinkled with his blood. That's from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. And so friends, May our lives be marked by a love for God that produces full and sincere obedience. So that in the end, when when we cross the finish line of this race, our lives will attest to the fact that to be a common, humble, lowly, faithful man or woman of God is ultimately far greater than being even a fearsome but faithless king. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word for the way that it confronts us, for the way that it comforts us, for the way that it teaches us and guides us. O Lord, Your Word is indeed perfect, inspired, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Lord, we know that in every way imaginable, we have failed You, we have sinned against You, we have disobeyed You, 
But we thank You that in accordance with Your great love and with Your great wisdom, when the time had come, You sent the Lord Jesus Christ to take on flesh and to live a life of perfect obedience to You, a life that is credited to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And not only did Jesus live for our disobedience, but He died for our salvation. He died so that our sins could be atoned for. Taking our sin upon Himself and in exchange clothing us with His own perfect righteousness so that it could be as though we lived perfectly obedient lives and Christ lived our disobedient lives. Our Father, as we consider the grace extended to us, the mercy that You have given us in Christ, we pray that our lives would be conformed more and more to Christ's image. That our lives would become increasingly obedient to Your Word and to Your will. And so we pray, O Lord, teach us to delight in Your statutes. Teach us to delight in Your ways and Your will. May Your your Word be a light to our path, our lives, uh, that shines in the darkness. O Father, thank You for the grace that You have given us in Christ. Teach us, O Lord, to be a people who glorify You through our obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.